chapter 21, beginning to read at verse 27. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that old Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And the commander came near and took him, commanded him to be bound with two chains, and he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, Away with him! Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? He replied, Can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs, motioned with his hand to the people, and when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, and we'll end there. Father, thank you for your word. It is our desire to worship you, to grow, to appreciate all that you have done uh, for us and continue to work in and through us. And I pray that uh, you would anoint me and enable me to faithfully speak your word as a clay vessel with clay feet. And I pray that each one of us with those uh, same clay vessels and clay feet would be receivers of this word and would find joy and comfort and encouragement Uh, from your word. We just uh, commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. may be seated. W. Weeks uh, tells a story about a uh, fleet of fishing boats that got caught in a fierce storm uh, off the coast of Newfoundland. And uh, they were not coming back. It got late at night and uh, all of the wives and um, mothers and sweethearts and children were pacing up and down the, the beach uh, hoping upon hope and praying that God would rescue these seamen and they were beginning to lose hope of that ever happening as the night wore on. And then to add insult to injury, uh, one of the ladies' cottages caught on fire and burnt to the ground, and everything in it was destroyed. But the next morning, uh, they rejoiced to see the fleet coming into the, the harbor there, and uh, they, everybody was greeting the husbands. They were rejoicing, except for this one young mother whose cottage had burned down, and she uh, told her husband, "'Oh, husband, we are ruined.'" We are ruined. Our home and all it contained was destroyed by the fire. And the man said to her, Thank God for that fire. It was the light of the burning cottage that guided the whole fleet to port. 
Now, from one perspective, that seems like an evil tragedy, a horrible thing that happened. But from another perspective, it came from the hands of a loving God that was in control during that whole time. And they did spend time thanking God uh, for that burnt-down cottage. You know, when we're living in troubled times, and we definitely are living in uh, troublesome times, it's sometimes difficult to see what God is doing, to even see His hand in the things that we are going through. Uh, we know it by faith, but uh, we sometimes have a hard time understanding it. Just as I'm sure Esther and Mordecai had a very difficult time understanding how could God be in the circumstances that they were facing. By the way, if you've never read the book of Esther, that is my one of my favorite books. It's a fun, fun read. And that book shows God's total sovereignty from beginning to end over every little detail, even the casting of the lot. Uh, it shows God's sovereignty over the evil decrees of evil governments. Now, God is not the author of sin. Okay, These people are responsible for their sin, and yet that book is quite clear that God purposed all of those things and He marvelously, somehow He marvelously and mysteriously causes even the wrath of man to praise Him. And all you have to do is look at the cross and you'll see what I mean. Here's the cross, worst, most heinous sin in all of history, uh, crucifying God's Son, the God-man. And uh, yet Scripture indicates very clearly that God ordained that sinful event. God purposed it. He willed for that to happen, and he brought good out of it. What men intended for evil, God intended for good. Let me give you one more illustration. It's actually one of my favorite verses. It's the, uh, Joseph's uh, gracious response to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20. Now, just as background, uh, Joseph's brothers had treated him horribly. Uh, they hated him, insulted him. They threw him into a pit. Uh, strategized to kill him, and then finally they made a buck by sending him into Egypt as a slave. And for 13 years he suffered because of their sin. But he trusted God throughout that time. Now when his brothers came to Egypt to get the food, and that's a fun story as well, but when they came into Egypt, they were very, very fearful, even after he had provided for them and everything, they were fearful he was going to take it out on them, especially once the dad died. And he said, who am I? Am I God to do this? And then he went on to say these words. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now, in the discussion on uh, Sermon on Job, John Piper was taking questions. And uh, this verse came up during that time. And he pointed out that the verse does not say God used it for good. Now, he did do that, but it didn't say that. It says he meant it. For good. This means God intended it. He purposed it. He willed it. He decreed it. In fact, Psalm 105, verse 17, shows God's activity in sending Joseph into Egypt so strongly. Here's how, how it words it there it says that He sent Joseph into Egypt. He sent him there. Now, we have two purposes in that passage. We have the purpose of evil men who intended evil, and you've got the purpose of a loving, holy God who could never sin, intending good, but intending good through the exact same actions. He intends good through it. It's just an amazing, amazing verse. And so Joseph very rightly condemns their action, condemns their purpose, while trusting in God's overriding purpose in the whole affair. 
And that is definitely true of the passage we're going to be looking at this morning. What men intended for evil, God intended for good. Now, here is a crowd that just looks absolutely out of control. But really, from God's perspective, they are not. They're not out of control. Uh, God uh, does not have a backup plan. Oh, things got messed up here. Okay, how are we going to fix it? Not at all. God is using this. These Jews are trying to get rid of Paul once and for all, but God uses their very actions to accomplish the opposite. In fact, He accomplishes something through um, Paul in the remainder of this book that Paul in his wildest imagination could not have imagined having the privilege of being able to do. For Paul to be able to preach to governors and kings and to Nero's household themselves... This crowd had to be out of control here. They had to go through this riot and attempt uh, to kill Paul. And this is the first of numerous detailed, tightly knit events through the rest of this book that show God is orchestrating all of these things to make sure Paul gets to Rome. And uh, it's a beautiful story and it's rising. It's almost like going to a crescendo as we get to the end of this book. Now, I think we can take the same comfort for our own day. What enemies intend for evil... God intends for good. See, evil men are only pawns and tools in God's hand. Uh, They act freely. they got a free will. But somehow, mysteriously, God controls what they are doing. So I definitely take comfort from passages like this where people are unleashing incredible hostility against God's people. So this is going to be a two-point sermon. Um, The Jews attack against Paul. What? men intended for evil, and then the Roman rescue, what God intends for good. Now, the culprits are described in verse 27. They're very upright, very uh, religious-looking people. Actually, they uh, are professing to be Bible believers, right? They're professing to be a part of the true people of God. He describes them as the Jews from Asia, and the references to these Jews occur 75 times in the book of Acts, And most of them show what a nightmare these people have been to Paul. They dog his every step, and they cause trouble everywhere. One person wrote, It's always easier to get religionists to fight for their religion than it is to get them to live it out. And that was definitely true of these Jews. Now, pagans did cause Paul a great deal of trouble. They they caused all kinds of troubles, but they didn't cause nearly as much trouble as these religionists did. And we can find exactly the same thing happening in our own day. If you were to ask almost any Christian leader this question, who has caused you the most trouble and stress in your ministry? Or what has hindered your ministry the most? I believe every one of those leaders would say that it was a professing fellow believer. What Paul addresses in chapter 22, verse 1 is, brethren and fathers. Now, this is true across the theological spectrum, whether you're thinking of a, a James Dobson, a Doug Phillips, a Ken Ham, Rush Dooney, Bonson, John Frame, Vodibachum, Mark Driscoll, you know, John Piper. I mean, it's tr- true of every one of them. Now, they do receive a lot of opposition from homosexuals and, and evolutionists and all kinds of crazies out there. In fact, Mark Driscoll's had uh, people running up onto the stage trying to kill him with machetes. You know, he's got to have guards out there. So he has had trouble out there. But these guys have said what has caused them the most trouble has not been the pagans out there. It's been people who are professing believers in Christ. And I've read the blogs and the websites devoted to tearing down such leaders, and it makes me want to pray for them. 
and say, oh Lord, have mercy on these leaders. They must be going through an awful lot. You can see that Satan is very, very busy within the church. Now, Proverbs talks about the foolish woman who tears down her house, but use that as an analogy of how foolish it is for Christians to be tearing down the church of Jesus Christ. So let's not forget the fact Paul addresses these culprits as brothers and fathers. Israel's not yet been excommunicated. In about eight, nine years, in the book of Hebrews and Revelation, they're going to get excommunicated, but it's not quite happened yet. Verse 27 gives the second C, the citizens arrest. It says, Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Now just before this incident, I can just imagine Paul breathing a sigh of relief that we've made it seven days through all of this in the temple. Maybe I'm going to be able to get out of this unscathed. There's uh, nothing happening. It's almost over, but there are some Asian Jews who recognize Paul. They come, they grab him, they're calling for the crowd uh, to uh, get him. And I believe that they're using the crowd because they know if they just turn him over to the uh, guards, the officials, then they'll have to go through a court trial and all of that kind of stuff, and maybe the outcome won't be quite the same. So they want Paul judged by the multitude. And critics today don't play fair uh, uh, against the gospel either. It's a, it's a different kind of crowd. Today, your name is smeared in the media, through email, on blogs, through gossip columns. But the effect is just as powerful as stirring up a crowd at a lynching. It is just as powerful. People are judged without any recourse to law. Now, some of these blogs who are writing up, you know, new criticisms almost every day of some of these leaders, they justify their actions by saying, hey, these guys can respond to these criticisms, and the fact that they're not responding shows that they're guilty. Hey, we're giving them place on the blogs. But as these leaders discover, there is not enough hours in the day if they were responding 24 hours a day to respond to all of the different blogs and all of the different criticisms that are being thrown out to people eager to read uh, this kind of gossip. Uh, It is very, very difficult. But it's the charges that are the most hypocritical. Verse 28, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Now, they're, they're going to keep bringing charges and changing charges in the next two chapters. But let's just look at this verse. They're first of all accusing Paul of being against the Jews. Now, this is an amazing charge. Paul's a Jew, right? They're saying basically that Paul is an anti-Semite. And... Uh, Those are fighting words in the mid-50s. Remember we said last time that there was such growing antagonism between, uh, because of the brutal repression that the the, the Romans had done, Felix had done to the Jews, there was hatred against the Romans and against any sympathizers with the Romans. And so this is immediately poisoning the minds of this crowd against Paul. It doesn't take much to make people begin to be leery of a leader and say, ooh, well, maybe there is something that we need to worry about and just to avoid him altogether. What's particularly hypocritical about this charge is that Josephus points out that during the mid-50s, there was increasing hatred and racial prejudice that the Jews were expressing against Romans, any Romans. So here's a weird situation. Here are people who are racists upset that somebody else is a racist. That happen today? 
I think it happens quite a bit. Some of the biggest people who play the race card are the biggest racists uh, themselves. It's an old, old tactic, and we ought not to be sucked in by it or even discouraged by it. But a further hypocrisy is that Paul is a Jew who is currently practicing Jewish customs who's brought a huge gift to help the Jewish people. He's got a heart for the Jews. How could he be against the people? But you know what? Um, prejudice doesn't listen to reason. And when false charges are brought against pastors and conservative politicians in this nation, you need to prick up your ears. And you know, if these are trumped up charges, just stop it. Because the poles of this world are not going to be able to stop the gossip, but you can. The second charge is that Paul is against the law. Now, that's a pretty vague accusation. But if the media spreads the charge of ethics violations, illegal activities tax fraud, it doesn't matter whether the, the congressman is guilty or not, he goes down in flames because they just, they rile this whole thing up. I've been disgusted with a very recent smear campaign that's been brought against a candidate that I don't know if the candidate's good or bad, uh, but it just bothers me, the kind of uh, smear that's coming out by one of the agencies because this guy, along with some other council people, voted against a big bill that dealt with all kinds of subjects and just because there was a line in there that allowed uh, police to, uh, um, to monitor pedophiles, they say, oh yeah, he's voted against monitoring pedophiles. There must be something this guy has to hide. And it's almost implying this guy's either a pedophile or he's hiding pedophiles. It's just mobocracy. It's the same kind of thing that's going on here. And uh, horrible tactics. Horrible tactics that are used. Now, what I think is most atrocious about the Jewish charge against Paul is that these Jews are violating the law themselves. And they're doing it with a high hand. It's incredible. Like immoral congressmen who accuse other congressmen of immoral conduct, these people are accusing Paul of lawlessness, and yet they themselves are lawless. Now, let me just read you some scriptures that they are breaking right in this uh, riot here. First, Deuteronomy 25, 1 through 2, and I've got a bunch, uh, didn't put it in your outline, doesn't look like, but a bunch of other scriptures indicate that a person must be treated innocent until he is proven guilty. There is nothing that Paul has done, there is nothing that the crowd has witnessed that would be able to justify their behavior here. Paul has just finished fulfilling a, a Jewish law where his hair had grown long and he shaved it off as evidence that he's a Jew who's going through Jewish customs. He's not a Gentile. They didn't even bother to investigate. Second, Deuteronomy 16.18 and numerous other uh, scriptures indicate there has to be a public trial before an official court, before there can be any punishment inflicted on a person. Yeah, they're kind of ignoring that part of the Constitution. Third, not only may a person not be beaten prior to a public trial, he must be beaten in front of the judges if he deserves to receive a beating. Deuteronomy 25, Isaiah 43, Deuteronomy 17, there's a number of passages. So the beating that they're inflicting is unlawful. Fourth, even after it is brought to the civil magistrates, Deuteronomy 17.4 demands a thorough investigation. Well, obviously, no thorough investigation has happened. They plan to kill him right then and there. Fifth, Deuteronomy 17.1-17 and other passages insist circumstantial evidence is not enough. It's got to be corroboration with witnesses. It's all got to be reduced down to writing. This is all based on shouted hearsay. Sixth, the accused has the right to cross-examine his accusers. 
And there are several scriptures on that. Well, they don't even give them a chance. Seventh, the accused has the privilege of making a self-defense according to Deuteronomy 1, 16 through 17, another passage. Now, Paul tries to do that, but he's shouted down. Eighth, according to Exodus 22, 10 through 11, the witness had to take an oath before testifying against the accused. Now, there's other passages, but I think you've got enough here that you can see this is just rank hypocrisy that these guys are accusing Paul of being lawless while they're disobeying the law left and right. And it reminds me of the tactics that go on in Washington, D.C. and many a courtroom. A congressman who has been associated with homosexual prostitutes accusing others of immoral activity. Okay? Uh, or a uh, politician engaged in theft on a grand scale trying to spin some vague story of tax evasion on another congressman. Or um, a murderer telling pro-lifers that they are immoral. I mean, give me a break. I mean, these kinds of things just ought not to be. And the same kind of rank hypocrisy we see happens today. And by the way, it could happen to you, it could happen to me, it could happen to anyone. Now, I'm praying for some of these other leaders who are being taken out by these kinds of things, but it could happen to any of us at some time. And here's the point. Don't get discouraged when it does happen because God intends those very things for your good. God intended these attacks to come against Paul. Uh, Read John 12, verse 40 sometime, and you will see that there does come a time when a nation is given up. Romans 1 talks about that as well. And John chapter 12, verse 40 says that God blinds their eyes so that they cannot see. I think that's the only explanation you can give for the insanity that's coming out of Washington, D.C. right now. It does not make any sense. It's almost like there's blindness uh, that is on them. The third charge that they bring in verse 28 is that Paul is against the temple. Now, if Paul's against the temple, why is he in the temple? Why is he going through temple uh, sacrifices and rituals uh, there? Why is he submitting to the, 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 the requirements for Nazarite? Fourth charge is the most serious of all. And it can be found in the second part of verse 28 and then all of verse 29. It says, Furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. Now, the words they supposed should never be in our vocabulary when we're critiquing other people, when we're bringing uh, judgment, as it were. And Scripture says, judge righteous judgment. It's not saying you can't ever judge, but with the same judgment you judge, you're going to be judged, is what Scripture says. But all judgments need to be based on solid evidence. And let me try to illustrate the difference. There was a Fox... uh, a Fox News reporter that was trying to get some of the fires that were happening, spreading through um, a, a valley, but everything was blockaded. He couldn't get there, so he asked permission to be able to charter a flight, and Fox News said, that's fine, go ahead. On the way to the airport, he calls on his cell phone and uh, reserves a plane. They said, it'll be waiting. It's going to be a two-engine plane waiting on the tarmac for you. He drives up, and... Uh, the door's open, he jumps in, pulls his bag in, slams the door shut, and he says, let's go. And uh, the guy, you know, swung the plane into the wind, takes off, and once in the air, the photographer instructed the pilot, fly over the valley, make low passes so that I can take pictures of the fires on the hillside. 
And the pilot said, why? He said, because I'm a photographer for Fox Cable News and I need to get some close-up shots. And the pilot was kind of strangely silent for a moment and he finally stammered, so what, what you're telling me is you're not the flight instructor? <laughs> <laughs> Suppositions can sometimes be deadly. <laughs> they can sometimes be deadly. But to make suppositions like the one made in verse 28 that can damage a person's reputation, that can damage his career, perhaps even take out his life, is just downright immoral. It should never be done. And we, too, can be guilty by buying into the propaganda that we hear about some politician or some other person. Now, the reason this charge was so dangerous was that the Romans had given permission to the Jews to inflict capital penalty uh, for one crime and one crime only, and that was if any Gentile went beyond a certain barricade within the temple where only Jews were able to go. Now, the caveat was it was authorities who had the permission to execute, uh, uh, you know, to give capital penalty for somebody who did that. But everywhere there were signs written in Latin and Greek that said this, No Gentile may enter within the railing around the sanctuary and within the enclosure. Whoever should be caught will be uh, will render himself liable to the death penalty, which will inevitably follow. And we still have two of those postings that archaeologists have dug up with those words uh, on it. And so this was a very serious charge, and they should not have been making any suppositions whatsoever. And the hypocrisy can be seen in the three questions in your outline. First of all, where are the Greeks? He says, this guy's brought Greeks into the temple. Okay, where are the Greeks? Why are they just grabbing Paul? Why don't they grab uh, Trophimus? If they had seen the Greeks coming in with him on a different day, they should have done something back then. And not doing it is hypocrisy. If they've seen him coming in with Greeks right now, they should have grabbed the Greeks. So where are the Greeks? Where's Trophimus? And third, if Paul is a Nazarite with four other Nazarites in the portion of the temple known as the chamber of the Nazarites, that we've got clear evidence he's identifying himself with the Jews, uh, not Gentiles. So how could a guy who the Jews, Jewish priests, have obviously approved his sacrifice, everything he's done for the last seven days, so how could he be involved in some conspiracy to defile the temple? It just does not make any sense whatsoever. I've already dealt with uh, the fourth C, conjecture. Let's move on to the fifth C, contradictions. That all the city was disturbed. Why disturbed when there was no evidence? Well, this is mob psychology. As we're going to see in verse 34, they don't even know, all of them, what this is about. They just know Paul is bad. Let me tell you something. If mobs get unleashed in Omaha, you better have an equalizer because it's the only thing mobs understand. It's the same thing that the Romans. They quit immediately as soon as the Romans come out uh, in force. The only thing they understand is strength. Second contradiction Moral outrage producing immorality. And the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple. Now, we've already dealt with that contradiction to some degree. Moral outrage by immoral people. And we see this in not only D.C., but state capitals, city councils. We see it all over the place. But you know what? You can see immoral manifestations of moral outrage even in the church. I've kept an advertisement... Uh, from 100 um, uh, church pastors and leaders 
that are pro-homosexual and pro-abortion, and they're expressing moral outrage at people calling homosexuality sin, calling abortion sin. I mean, even with those who profess the name of Christ, we can see this happening. Third, the people run together to tear something apart. They have a unity of purpose to destroy all unity. Now, we know it's not really unity because they don't even know what they're talking about. In verse 34, they don't even have their stories together. So some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not discern the truth because of the tumult, etc. What unites them together is uh, that they've got a common enemy that they can take their frustrations out on. I'm sure some of these people did not have the foggiest notion of whether Paul was guilty of the charges or not. They were simply so frustrated with all of the abuses that the Gentiles had brought against them that when there's some outlet for their rage, they take it. They take it. And that's always a danger in any country. Minorities like these Jews here can do some hateful things. Why? Because they have been hurt so much. And they don't have the grace of God to overcome that. Fourth contradiction is fastidiousness with temple purity. The commentators point out it's likely the guards who quickly shut the gates. They're the only ones authorized to do that. And the reason that they're doing it is the um, what commentators say is they don't want the temple to be defiled. They know, whoa, there's a riot going on. Somebody could get killed in the temple. And Old Testament indicates it takes a long time to purify the temple and everything. So they're fastidious about that. They quickly close the great gates. But those same guards don't protect Paul from harm or a mob disregard for law. They don't insist on justice. They don't insist on a court hearing. And Jesus pointed out the same problems with the Pharisees in his day. He said they strain out a gnat that's fallen into their soup, but they swallow a camel. Okay, And it's so easy for it to happen. We can be such nitpickers and, and, and so preoccupied and upset about little details And then we just gloss over the big things, what Jesus said, justice, mercy, and faith. Matthew 23, 23 23-24. Now, he didn't say, let the other things uh, alone. He said, these things you ought to do, but not overlook these big items. Now, lest we point the finger, it's uh, very easy for us to do exactly the same thing. Now, all of this rejection of God and gospel is going to lead Israel to being rejected by God. And there are, according to some commentators, that's what symbolized with them shutting the gates uh, of the temple. Because Paul and God and gospel have been shut out of the temple, Israel itself is going to be shut out of the temple and out of God's kingdom. So, it's a rather fast-paced story telling how Jews intended evil against God, against Paul, But though God is not mentioned in this narrative, just like He's not mentioned in the narrative in Esther, it's clear God is beautifully working all things together for the invincible advancement of His kingdom. First, God brings the Romans in in the nick of time to save Paul, verses 31 through 32. Now, as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. These guys are not stupid. (laughs) They know when to quit, right? They know how to control their rage. They've um, already witnessed the rough hand of Felix brutally suppressing revolts. And so as soon as they see the soldiers, they stop beating Paul. This is God's providence at work. God makes sure that the guard, uh, that the commander is there at just the right time. But I think we do need to be aware of the fact that bringing out swords 
here made a difference, even with Ahmad. You know, in L.A. during the riots, uh, the storekeepers who had shotguns didn't even have to fire the shotguns, just the presence of those shotguns. Uh, that's about the only thing a mob listens to. Okay, let's move on. Second, God makes sure that Paul is taken out of Jewish, Jewish jurisdiction and into Roman jurisdiction. And it was critical for this to happen for God's plans to work out. I'm not sure God could have rescued him from the Sanhedrin, but what he's trying to do is get him to go all the way to Rome. So it's very critical that um, he, he changed jurisdictions. Look at verses 33 through 36. Well, we'll just read verse 33 first. Then the commander came near and took him, commanded him to be bound with two chains, and he asked who he was and what he had done. Now, by binding Paul, he changes jurisdiction from the Jewish to Roman. From here on in, Roman law has got to be followed. Uh, he was no doubt bound by a belt by the Jews, uh, just like Agabus had, had talked about. Here he's bound by uh, two chains. And this is uh, very essential to get Paul to Rome rather than the Sanhedrin. The Greek indicates that the commander must have repeatedly been asking questions and he's not getting the answers he needs. Verse 34. Some among the multitude cried one thing, some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded them to be taken into the barracks. And so the violence of the crowd is keeping this commander from negotiating any kind of a deal with the Jewish leaders. Uh, can God control the hearts of crowds? Absolutely, yes, He can. In Exodus, He controlled the hearts of the Egyptians so that they gladly were spoiled. They were giving their money and giving their gold and different things to the Jews when the Jews left Egypt. God can control the hearts of even crowds, and I believe He does so here. This was a very scary spot to be in for 200 soldiers, even war-hardened soldiers, and so the commander wants to get Paul out of there as quickly as possible. And this, too, is God's providence at work. Look at verses 35 through 36. It says, When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob, for the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, Away with him. Now, that sounds so much like what they said about Christ uh, that it's uncanny. But what I would like to point out is that God is moving things at a perfect timing to make this um, increasing tension and hatred of Jews for Christians increase to a level where it was going to force believing Jews to abandon the ceremonial law that they so tightly clung to. As Paul had demonstrated in his epistles, the ceremonial law was the middle wall of partition that separated between Jew and Greek, just like this middle wall of partition, you know, that's had all of these death sentence uh, warnings, don't any Gentile come in here. That middle wall of partition was keeping Gentiles out as well. And uh, the moderating actions of James and the elders that we looked at, was it last week or a couple of weeks ago, those are not going to cut it in the final analysis. Uh, they could not have their cake and eat it too. Within eight or nine years, uh, Hebrews and Revelation would be written and God would be definitively calling believers out of Judaism, out of the synagogue system and saying, if you don't, you're going to come under judgment yourself. And so there's this 40-year period of transition and God's using the increasing hostility of Jew against believer, against Christian, to kind of push uh, the, 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 the Christians out of, um, of the ceremonial law. And so, again... God's using all of these things, orchestrating them for the good of the church. 
Luke ends this chapter by giving us preliminary evidence of Paul's total innocence. And even the commander is going to see that shortly. Verse 37. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? He replied, Can you speak Greek? Uh, Paul is showing a, first of all in that, may I speak to you, he's showing a very respectful demeanor. He's not demanding. He's not sullen. He's not angry. This is definitely not the characteristic of the revolutionary that the commander thinks he's captured, and it kind of surprises him. It kind of makes him wonder, hey, what's going on here? And I, I think we can learn from this. A respectful demeanor will get Christians much, much farther with politicians than being angry and sulky will. Uh, there is a title of a book that uh, Capital Ministries guy recommended to me. I haven't read it yet, but I love the title. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry Church. And uh, he points out that when we are angry and sullen and uh, constantly, the only time they see us is when we're criticizing them, uh, we're not going to have the kind of influence that we really desire to have. Just think of what um, this commander would have done to Paul if he was insulting to Paul. It would have been a totally different uh, scenario. And so when you get tangled up in politics, remember Paul's demeanor. Sinners in the hands of an angry God, that's okay. But sinners in the hands of an angry church is usually counterproductive. Uh, continuing in verse 37, he replied, Can you speak Greek? Now, it's not surprising that Paul can speak Greek because most Jews could, but I think what's surprising here is that Paul can speak Greek fluently like an educated man could. Paul is probably so dirty, so roughed up, he looks like an uneducated ragamuffin, you know. Whoa, can you speak uh, Greek? And it may be that the Egyptian revolutionary was not able to speak Greek. Most commentators doubt that. But um, uh, it, it's not the Jews could not speak Greek. Verse 38, Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? And Josephus mentions exactly the same revolutionary. He led thousands of Sicarii assassins out to the Mount of Olives, and he promised them, the evidence seems a little bit mixed, either that God was going to knock down the walls of Jerusalem, they'd take it all over, or that he would take, knock down the walls of Jerusalem. But anyway, he's just one of many messiahs, false messiahs, that came uh, during the first century. Now, the Romans, as soon as they see this, these guys up there, they charge after them, decimate the army, but the leader escapes into the desert. So, What's going on here is that this man thinks that he's captured the leader of this huge revolutionary group. This is going to be a trophy. This is going to be a feather in his cap. He maybe will get an advancement for it. And I think this is one another little detail that keeps Paul alive. The guy may not have cared one way or the other if Paul got killed, but he wants his trophy. He wants to capture this Egyptian. So again, God is working even details like that uh, for his plan. Now, Paul assures him this is a case of mistaken identity. He says, I am a Jew. Now, this is going to put to rest any possible accusation they might be throwing to the commander right now, that he's a Gentile, he's defiled the temple, and he needs the death penalty. I am a Jew. Then he says, a Jew from Tarsus, so he's not from Egypt. And then he says, a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. Paul's citizenship in that very respected city means this commander better deal with him properly or he's going to have some answering to do. Um, he needs to be taken seriously. Now, it's not going to be till the next chapter that this commander finds out he's a Roman citizen. I think he could have Im implied that here, but he has to make it clear, and Paul definitely makes it clear so he doesn't get another beating. 
And then finally, Paul asks permission to speak to the Jews and give a defense. He says, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs, motioned with his hand to the people, and when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, and we're going to look at his speech in the future, but here it shows, first, presence of mind on the part of Paul. Second, shows his constant looking for opportunities to witness. Third, shows a respectful spirit. And fourth, shows his Jewishness. So Paul's speech is going to be one more link that would make it impossible for Paul to remain outside of Roman custody. He had to be in Roman custody in order for Paul to be able to enter into this marvelous adventure that God's going to be taking him through in the next uh, chapters. And because Paul was focused on God's purpose, he was able to remain steady. And that's what I would encourage you to do in the midst of our historical situation. God has His purposes. And we need to focus on God's purposes and not man's. It's true, the liberals, I think, are intending evil for us. I think they are. But don't focus on them. Don't be enemy-focused. Be God-focused. Be grace-focused. Be promise-focused. And if you do, you're going to have the presence of mind to be able to take advantage of opportunities when they come up, just like Paul did in this chapter. And uh, you're going to be able to keep advancing knowing that you are invincible until it's God's time for you to die. Instead of singing backward Christian soldiers, you're going to be able to sing onward Christian soldiers, right? Uh, God's grace is powerful, incredibly powerful. Not only can it instantly convert the heart of a Saul of Tarsus who was a persecutor of the church, uh, but it controls men and movements, sin and righteousness, things visible, things invisible. Nothing is outside of God's control and His grace needs to be our rear guard, our foreguard, above us, underneath us. It needs to be the beginning and the ending of our faith. Let me read you a parody and then urge you to take the opposite. The parody says, Backward Christian soldiers fleeing from the fight with the cross of Jesus nearly out of sight. Christ, our rightful master, stands against the foe. Onward into battle we seem afraid to go. Backward Christian soldiers fleeing from the fight with the cross of Jesus nearly out of sight. Like a mighty tortoise moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where we've often trod. We are much divided, many bodies we, having different doctrines but not much charity. Backward Christian soldiers fleeing from the fight with the cross of Jesus nearly out of sight. Crowns and thrones may perish, kingdoms rise and wane, but the cross of Jesus hidden does remain. Gates of hell should ne'er, never against the church prevail. We have Christ's own promise, but we think it might fail, that it might fail. Sit here then, ye people, join our sleeping throng. Blend with ours your voices in a feeble song. Blessings, ease, and comfort ask from Christ the King, but with our modern thinking, we won't do a thing. Backward Christian soldiers fleeing from the fight with the cross of Jesus nearly out of sight. Now that's... A pretty good description, I think, of at least a good section of the modern church. It is not a good description of the Apostle Paul. And it's Paul's faith that I want you to imitate. Always remember that what men intend for evil against you, God intends for good. Trust Him and move forward. Amen. Thank you, Father, for Your Word and the encouragement of it, and that even in the midst of disaster and the realistic disaster that is being portrayed here, we can see Your invincible finger drawing history. Help us to have a perspective of providential history, not only of the past, 
but of our individual lives day by day. And may you receive the glory through our responses. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to make an attempt at uh, singing this Psalm 3 again. Uh, Repetition is the best way of learning. So let's stand and... um, We're not going to be singing the verses that are in between. We're just going to be stringing uh, the straight uh, text. How are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many are they that say of my soul, There is no help for him in God, But Thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, My glory and the lifter of my head. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, Salvation belongs to the Lord. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and He heard me from His holy hill. I laid down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. But Thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves Against me round about But Thou, O Lord, art a shield for me My glory and the lifter of my head Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God Salvation belongs to the Lord You have struck all my enemies On the cheek you have struck them You have broken their teeth Broken the teeth of the wicked Thou, O Lord, art a shield for me My glory and the lifter of my head Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your Receive the Lord's charge and His blessing. Children of God, I charge you to trust God not only to bring good out of your situation, but that He has intended good through your situation.
Lord, bless you and keep you. Lord, make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.